song right there had never heard it till we went to camp and that kind of became the song they just kept doing a camp over and over and uh man just loved that song he is alive amen he's alive he's alive and there is hope uh, as a result of that well good morning welcome to Northside Baptist Church so thankful that you are here I know many people are traveling this weekend so maybe you're watching online and so I want to welcome you as well if this is your first time with us man thank you for being here you are our guest and we want you to feel welcomed uh, we want you to feel loved. Uh, we pray that when you leave here, uh, you leave here knowing that we're a church that believes uh, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and we want Him to be Lord and Savior, not only of our lives, but of your life as well. There's also some good news that we're going to hear from in our text this morning that's going to give you hope. And so hopefully if you came in feeling hopeless, you'll leave uh, feeling, feeling filled with hope. If this is your first time with us inside the bulletin, should have been one there on your seat, is a place for you to fill out some information about yourself. You can put it in the box that's out there in the foyer. There's also a place for you to write down some prayer requests. So if there's something that you need prayer for, please, uh, please let us know um, about that. Hopefully you'll read the bulletin. A lot of announcements in there. We'll talk about most of those uh, as you leave. But let me ask you a question. Before you came in and read through the bulletin, how many of you in here are familiar with Mission Dignity? Raise your hand if you know what Mission Dignity is. All right, a few of you. I want all of you to know what Mission Dignity is. So every, the last Sunday of June, every year, Southern Baptists have what's called Mission Dignity Sunday. But because of the virus, they pushed it back till the last Sunday of August, which was last Sunday. But we had baptism and Lord's Supper 
And so we didn't really have time to focus on mission dignity. So um, I'm going to show you a video in just a second that kind of explains what mission dignity is. And then I want to explain to you as to how you can get involved. Because it is an unbelievable ministry that sometimes is neglected and not talked about as much. Um, so check out this video. All across America, the Southern Baptist Convention includes more than 15 million members, all shepherded by some 47,000 pastors. A few pastors live in big cities and serve megachurches with large memberships. But the majority serve small congregations and are paid modestly. The pay that I got was half of the offering. Sometimes it was $10, sometimes maybe 15 Often, after serving their whole lives, they head into retirement with small earnings and little savings. So even buying basics like food and medicine can be a bumpy road. And I have went to bed hungry because I want my bills paid. I've got to pay for my medicine. Guidestone's Mission Dignity Ministry gives someone like you opportunities for assisting retired Southern Baptist ministers, workers, and their spouses in critical financial need. Since 1918, we've been the arms of Christ extended to these faithful servants. It takes over $7 million annually from people like you and churches like yours to provide monthly assistance to nearly 1,800 retirees who have nowhere else to turn. 100% of donations go directly to help someone in need. Through Mission Dignity, we as Southern Baptists are working together to assure no retired preacher or his widow has to live in poverty. Learn more at missiondignity.org. So in our annual budget, we vote to, I believe it's $600 that we send from from the amount of money that we bring in as a church to this organization, this ministry called Mission Dignity. And so this is something that they rely on just church members to give. So some of you, maybe you grew up in a small church. Maybe you had a bivocational pastor. They didn't have great insurance. They didn't have a great retirement, couldn't give much to Social Security. And so you have retired pastors in their 60s, 70s, 80s. Some of them have passed on. Their, their wives are still alive, and they barely have enough money, as they said, for food, medicines, medical needs. And so Mission Dignity is a way for us who have financial means, who the Lord has blessed, and even pastors like myself who, who don't have to struggle with that, to give to these men and women who have poured into your life and to mine. We are where we are because of many of them. So it's a way to help them. So when you leave out there on, on the table, the guest desk, the help desk there, uh, is an envelope that just looks like this. You can write a check, put it in here, no postage necessary, and you can mail this directly to Mission Dignity. Uh, you, there's ways to give online. I'm going to ask um, not to actually give through the church this year, but actually uh, just to give on your own to Mission Dignity. But if you feel led, if you uh, have the means to help some retired pastors and their, their spouses, just to make it a little bit easier on them, some of them get upwards of six to $700 a month. Some receive about $250 a month, just depending upon their needs. But it is a phenomenal way to help pastors, their spouses who have poured into us. So let me, let me pray, and we're going to specifically just pray for them, and then we're going to sing a little bit more. Father God, we, we clearly see from Scripture that you have given teachers, evangelists, you've given pastors. You've called pastors, you've set pastors apart Lord, many of those pastors shepherded people, and as that one gentleman said, he'd get half the offering, and there were some Sundays it'd be $10. And Lord, maybe they had a, a decent paying other job, but some of them maybe they didn't. And, and so Lord, they struggled. They struggled to prepare for retirement, and so here they are struggling to, to, to pay for their medicine, struggling to put food on the table. And Lord, we have an opportunity as men and women who have been blessed, who have plenty, Lord, of, of being able to give directly to this ministry to help out these, these men and women. Lord, the front of this envelope, Father, says you are here because they were there. 
Lord, I know that I'm in large part where I am today because of pastors who faithfully taught the Word of God, who faithfully shepherded my family or, or myself, who, who faithfully cared for their sheep, who sought to guard and protect their sheep. Because of their, their wife who, who loved that church well and who loved their, their husband well and, and loved their pastor well. So, Lord, I just pray for them. Some of them this morning, Lord, maybe are, are struggling with declining health or struggling to make ends meet. Lord, would you just give them hope? Would you just help them to know right now that there are people here at Northside Baptist Church that are praying for them? Um, and Lord, maybe this would be a good opportunity for us just this week to send a card or to write a letter to a former pastor of ours and just to say thank you. Thank you for being faithful to love Jesus and to teach me the Word of God and to invest in me. I am where I am because you were faithful. Uh, Lord, I know pastors all across the world, they're struggling. There's a lot on their plate right now. So, Lord, how can we encourage them uh, today? Would you just lay that upon our hearts? And we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you please stand? Let's continue to worship together. We love you, we worship 
standing, if you will, and take your Bibles and turn to 1 John. 1 John, we're going to look at the last two verses of verse 28, and then the first three verses of chapter 3. 1 John, chapter 2, 28, through chapter 3, verse 3. This is what the Word of the Lord says. And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. You may be seated. And there's only five verses here, but there is so much stuff here. And we see hope throughout this. The word hope is actually mentioned in chapter 3, verse 3, but man, we see hope filling these verses. And man, when you look around at the world around us, I think you probably see everything but hope. Um, it almost seems hopeless. And it's very easy to get discouraged, to get down, to, to feel defeated. And so this morning, I just want every single one of us to see the hope that is in these five verses and to leave here filled with hope because of what we see. And so what we're going to do this morning is there's two main truths or two doctrines that I want you to see, and then I'm also going to give you some application as we apply that to our life. So here's the first big idea that I want you to notice from our text, and that is simply this, the return of Jesus Christ. The return of Jesus Christ. John begins in verse 28, and now little children. That phrase, and now, right, is, is sig signaling to us an end of one section and the beginning of a new section. And this new section begins here in verse 28 and goes through verse 10. And the focus here, particularly you'll get into verses 4 and 10 next week, is upon righteousness. You remember John is giving us three tests. How do we know that we belong to Christ? How do we know that we are in Christ? He says, well, there's a moral test. You're going to obey the word of God. You're going to seek to live out the commands of God. You're going to live a righteous life. That's one test. The second test is a social test. They'll know that we're Christians by our love, how we love other people. And then there's the, uh, right, the theological test, if you will, um, that we believe that Jesus is the Christ. So this section is really the moral test. It's the second time he's dealing with this that we're going to live a life of righteousness. And, and so what he says is, And now, little children, abide in him, here it is, so that when he appears, when he appears. Growing up, there were certain events that I really looked forward to, that I would live in anticipation of those events. When I was younger, it was Saturday mornings. Not for the cartoons, I like cartoons, but it was for baseball. Right, Saturdays, I don't remember really having a lot of games during the week. We played on Saturdays. And so yeah, I didn't have a phone then, so I couldn't check the weather. So I had no idea if it was going to rain or not. And so I'd wake up and I'd run outside to know, man, am I going to get to play? And when, when the sun was shining and it wasn't raining, it was just like there was a smell in the air of baseball. I got to play. I lived in anticipation of that. I lived right in, in, in anticipation for Christmas morning. And some of us still do. Right, we can't wait for Christmas morning to come. I couldn't wait for summer break to get out of school. And now as a parent, I can't wait till it's over. Go back to school. Right, Things change. Um, and I always, when I was younger and even today, look forward to vacation. We live in anticipation of certain events. And John is saying to us, listen, abide in him so that when he appears... Jesus Christ is returning, and we are to live our lives in anticipation of his return. This week I read uh, where one person said one in every 25 verses in the New Testament deals with the Lord's return. One in every 25. I also read someone said the return of Jesus is mentioned 318 times in 260 chapters 
of the New Testament. Let me just give you some scripture. Uh, Mark 14, 62. These will appear on the screen. And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Philippians 3, 20 says, But our citizenship is from heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Right? We are awaiting for our Savior, Jesus Christ. Revelation chapter 1, verse 7. Behold, He is coming with the clouds. He's coming, and every eye will see Him. And then Revelation twenty two twenty. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Jesus Christ is returning. Amen. This isn't up for debate. Notice the language. So that when he appears, not if he appears or he may appear, but when he appears. So the question for us is not, is Jesus Christ coming? The question for us is when he comes, will we be ready? And look what he says. So that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. That when Christ comes, we may have, John says, confidence. Absence of fear when speaking has the idea of boldness or openness. John is saying, listen, when Christ returns, we can be confident when he comes. Because we're abiding in Christ, our faith is in Christ, we can be confident. But not everyone will be confident. What he says some will shrink from him in shame. Now, commentaries differ on how we understand that phrase, shrink from him in shame. Is it referring to when Christ comes, there will be those who feel personal shame? Those who have rejected Jesus and they see him for who he is, they will feel personally ashamed for how they lived and how they rejected him. Or does it mean that when Jesus Christ comes, God will openly put you to shame? Not so much that they will feel ashamed, but that God will put them to shame. Because he's the judge and he's about to condemn them to hell. My personal opinion is I think both of these are, can be applied here. That those who have rejected Jesus Christ, and if you have rejected Jesus, John is saying when he comes, you will be ashamed for rejecting him. And he will openly put you to shame for rejecting him. So hear me. When Christ appears, he's going to judge. And either you will shrink away in shame or you will stand confidently because your faith was in Jesus. Now watch what he says in verse 29. The hope is that Jesus Christ is going to return. And then he says this. If you know that he is righteous... You may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. Here's the application. The return of Christ, that's our hope. The return of Christ compels us to live a righteous life. He says, if you know that he is righteous, Jesus is holy. In him is no sin. And since Jesus is holy, John can go on to say, if you know that he is righteous... You may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. That phrase, born of him, or born again, it's the first time John uses that phrase in this letter. He'll go on to use it nine more times. A total of ten times in five chapters, this idea of being born again. This is the first occurrence. You remember in the Gospel of John, John records the conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus. In which Jesus tells Nicodemus, you must be what? born again. So there's this idea in scripture that we are to be born again. So watch what, John, what John's doing here. He's establishing two truths in these two verses, 28 and 29. One, Jesus is returning. That is your hope. You have been born again if you have put your faith in Christ. That is your hope. Therefore, you are to pursue righteousness. Look what he says. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. The return of Christ compels us to live a righteous life. The fact that we have been born again compels us to live a righteous life. What does he mean here by righteousness? He means correct moral behavior. That you will live your life, hear me, in a way that is acceptable to God. 
John is so certain of the power of the new birth that he says, in evidence of your being born again is that you will live a righteous life. The evidence of your being born again is that your life will now look different because of Jesus Christ. John Stott writes, a person's righteousness is thus the evidence of his new birth, not the cause or condition of it. That's a critical distinction. I am not telling you to live a righteous life so that when Jesus returns, he has to save you because you are righteous. That's not what John is saying. What John is saying is you have been born again, Christ is coming, you've been saved, therefore out of that you now live a righteous life. You live a life that is distinct from the world. So hear me, young to older, holiness is not optional for us as Christians. It is not optional for us to be more like Christ or not. You are called to pursue righteousness. It is vital. And the gospel teaches us that Jesus Christ took my sin upon himself on the cross so that he could then give me his righteousness. And the gospel teaches us that the Holy Spirit, who anoints us, as we saw last week, enters into our life. And when the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, enters in, holiness must come out. He's going to transform us. And we're going to pursue holiness. You are born again. Therefore, you will be changed. Pursue righteousness. So you say, Pastor, I don't want to be ashamed when Christ returns. And John would say, then abide in him. Know you've been born again and pursue righteousness. Seek to live like Jesus. And if we do those things, then we will not be ashamed at his return. But we will be confident because we know we are in Christ. So the return of Christ, big truth number one, compels us right to live a righteous life. So that's your hope. Jesus is coming, therefore live for him. And then here's the second beautiful doctrine that we see in our verses this morning, and that is this, the doctrine of adoption. The doctrine of adoption. Look what he says, verse one. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. So under the doctrine of adoption, notice, number one, what we are. Church, what are we? Look what John says. See. That's a verb. Look, behold. It's in the imperative. He is commanding us to look, to behold, to see something. What are we to see? The ESV says, what kind of love the Father. The CSB says, see what great Love the Father. The King James Version, behold what manner. J.B. Phillips says, consider the incredible love. I love when you study uh, and you're trying to learn the original sense of a word, sometimes it just blows you away. So this Greek word translated what kind, the original sense of this Greek word actually meant of what country. Of what country is this love that God the Father has for us. In other words, it's unearthly. The love God has for us is unlike anything you and I will ever see, experience, or encounter here on earth. What is this kind of love? What does he say? See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. That is an unbelievable church when you and I begin to grasp this biblical picture of adoption. It is unearthly because the earthly love that we are used to is conditional. My love, often for other people, is based upon how lovable are you. Like that, right? I mean, is that not how sometimes we view love? Is that not how so, so many people view marriage? Marriage is supposed to be a covenant. Many people today view it as a contract. I will continue to love you as long as you're lovable. As long as you do what you should do, and I do what I'm supposed to do, this thing can work out. That's the earthly love. It's conditional. That is not God's love for us. Hear me very clearly. God's adopting us as sons and daughters is based on his grace and not our merit. No one can stand before God and say, look, you had no choice but to adopt me. 
I mean, look, you couldn't live without me. Look how lovable I am. Look how amazing I am. No one can say that. It is based upon grace. God is a father. And through Jesus Christ, he becomes my father, my Abba, my daddy. He becomes my father. Through Jesus Christ, he becomes your father. We are adopted into his family through the new birth. And look what he says. Look at his language. That we should be called children of God. And so we are. Church, that's good. We are children of God. Not just in title, but we are treated as sons and daughters. So you guys know, our youngest son, Malachi, he is adopted. And right, we went before the judge, and he made it official. And I was hoping he dropped the gavel, and he didn't do that. But right, he made it official. Malachi became our son. He took on the name Hornsby, but not just in title only. It wasn't that now I have a biological son, Landon Hornsby, and an adopted son, Malachi Hornsby, but I treat Landon differently than I treat Malachi. No. Malachi is a Hornsby, not just in title, but he actually is my son. And I'm his dad. And I treat him as my son, and I am his father. We are children of God. Isaac Watts says, Behold, the amazing gift of love the Father has bestowed on us, the sinful sons of men, to call us sons of God. I am a sinful son of men. And yet, by God's grace, I am a son of God the Father. We talk much about justification, and rightly so. The God, the judge on his throne, declares me through the shed blood of Jesus Christ, through my faith in Jesus Christ, he declares me justified, declared not guilty, no condemnation. I am righteous before him through Jesus. But that same God, the judge, it's as if he takes off his robes and he steps down to me and he says, not only are you right with me, but I am now your father. And he picks me up, and he says, you are my son, and I will forever treat you not as a judge, but as your father. Man, it is great. It is great, J.I. Packer said along these lines, right, justification to be right with God is greater, but to be called his son is greater still, that he treats us as sons and daughters. Burdick writes, God loves the sinner, not because he is drawn to him by his lovableness, but because in spite of man's unloveliness, God sets his mind and will on seeking man's highest good. This is what is amazing about God's love. Maybe you walked in here, and maybe you're watching this online, and you're thinking this morning, listen, I don't feel like God's child, so maybe I'm not. Or maybe you're thinking, listen, I'm not always acting like God's child, so maybe I never was. Let me tell you the glorious thing about God's adopting love for us, and that is this. If you, through faith in Jesus Christ, declare him to be Jesus the Christ, the Son of God, Lord and Savior of your life, however old you were, if you genuinely give your life to him, and he declares you not only right with him, but he declares you to be his son and daughter, here's the good news, God will never unadopt you. He will never say, well, you're not as lovable as you were back then, you're out. You're not representing me the way you should. Sorry, I'm kicking you out to make room for others. No, there is plenty of room in the family of God. And once you're in, you're in. You are his son and his daughter. Church, this gives us hope. Beloved, we are God's children. Look what he says, now. Underline that word, now. You are justified now. You are adopted now. You are set apart now. You have eternal life now. You don't have to wait for these things. They're yours now in Christ. This gives us hope. So what we are, we are sons and daughters of God. I mean, he could stop there and we'd, we could hallelujah and rejoice and amen and worship God, but he doesn't. He keeps going. Notice, secondly, what we will be. He says, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. John is thinking about the future. 
the glorified state. When Christ returns or when we die and we go to be with the Father, he's thinking about this and he acknowledges, I think this is helpful for us, he acknowledges that we cannot fully comprehend everything we would like to know about that future glorified state. I mean, this is John. He walked with Jesus. He was part of the inner circle. And even John is saying, listen, I don't know everything there is to know about this future glorified state. Jesus didn't tell them everything they needed to know. He says, what we will be has not yet appeared. Listen, we don't know all the details, and we all have questions. Right? If you right now could raise your hand and start asking questions about heaven, we, we have a lot of questions. What will heaven be like? What, what is my, my mom who's in heaven right now, what is she doing? Can she look down and see me? Is she praying for me? Right? Uh, how old will we be when we get into a glorified body? Some people say Jesus was 33. We'll be 33 years old. That's the perfect age. That's all speculation. We, we don't know what it will be like. When we get to heaven, will we know each other? Again, we speculate and we can point to a verse here or there. Kids often ask when a pet dies, hey, did my pet go to heaven? Will there be animals in heaven? Look, again, we can speculate. We can try to answer those questions. But can I just encourage you this morning with this? Do not focus all your attention on what we don't know and focus on what we do know. John says, look, there's a lot I don't know. But then look what he says. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we, but we know. And he says there's three things he knows. Number one, he says, but we know that when he appears, right, Jesus Christ shall appear. Again, when, not if, not maybe, but when. So we know Jesus is going to appear. He says, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. That's the second thing I want you to notice, because we shall see him as he is is church think about that for a moment a day is coming in which you will look jesus christ in the eyes you will see him and he will see you face to face that day is coming and we want it to come sooner than later but that day's coming in which we will see him and he will see us face to face and john wants us to be prepared for that moment but look what else he says we shall see him as he is. I love how Ray Pritchard summarizes this. He says, as he is, not as he was, not as a little child resting in the manger, not as a traveling teacher walking the dusty roads of Galilee and Judea, not even as a miracle worker who heals the sick and raises the dead. We will not see him as he was on the cross, beaten, bruised, abused, more dead than alive. Nor will we behold him as he was in the tomb, a corpse wrapped in a linen cloth. We will see him as he is in heaven, risen, ascended, victorious, the lamb who is also a lion, king of kings and lord of lords. We know doubt for a moment, we don't doubt for a moment that we will see Jesus himself as he is. That's why so many people will shrink back in fear and shame. Because they will see the resurrected, risen King of kings and Lord of lords. And we will see him. And look what he says, sandwiched in between. When he appears and we shall see him as he is, he says this, we shall be like him. Seeing Jesus in all of his glory will instantly make us pure and holy like him. In an instant. Look, John can't answer all the questions we may have about heaven or eternity, but he does know that when we see Christ as he is, we will be like him. We won't be equal to him, never, but we will be similar to him in holiness and resurrected bodies. Church, let me make this clear before we get into the point of application. You will live your life as a follower of Christ. At some point through your death or through the return of Christ, you will stand before him. You will see him eye to eye. He will see you eye to eye. You'll see him as he is. And in an instant, you will be like him. Application number one. Since we will be like Jesus in the future... We should be like him in the present. We're not going to wait till we see him eye to eye to become like him. No, right now as we live our life, we should imitate him now. 
John is calling for a present personal purity. Look what he says, verse 3. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Oh, church, we have an identity. We are adopted sons and daughters of God, born again. But out of that identity comes a responsibility. And it should be the habit of life to pursue purity and holiness. Sam Storm says, if we are in God's family by the new birth, we will exhibit a family resemblance. My mom and dad are here this morning with us. I'm a Hornsby. That is my name. And that meant something to me when I was in middle school and high school. I wanted to live my life in such a way that through my choices and actions, I didn't bring them shame. That I didn't ultimately bring shame to myself and then to them. I didn't want people in the community talking. That's, that's Leonard and Helen's son. Look, look what he's doing. And bring disrepute and shame to them. I wanted to resemble them well. In a much greater way, we represent our Father. We represent our brother, Jesus Christ, to a lost and dying world. And we are to reflect Jesus now. We live as Jesus would have us live now. We talk to people the way Jesus would have us talk to them. We post and tweet and gram and whatever else social media you do. When you do those things, you should do them as Jesus would want you to do them. When you go into Kroger and you talk to the cashier, you treat her as Jesus would treat her. When you have a friend of yours who disagrees with you politically, you don't call them names. You love them as Jesus would love them. Because what they need is not a political party. What they need is Jesus. And you know Jesus. And you can give them Jesus. So give them Jesus. Listen, if you're not going to try to live like Jesus, then just do us all the favor as Christians. Stop telling people you're a Christian. Just help us out. I mean, if, you're, if you don't care, you don't want to be like Jesus, then stop saying, hey, I know Jesus. I believe in Jesus. Now, here, here's the reality. And this is what we got to understand. We are to live like Jesus now, but we're going to do it imperfectly. I don't expect all of us perfectly to walk in and be nice to that lady at Publix every single time. We're just not. I don't expect you, because I don't do it, to, to handle your kids and the way Jesus would teach them and discipline them right every time. Because we're not going to do it. We are imperfect. We are sinful. We are weak. And we will fail. But one day our hope is that we will be like Jesus. And that sin and that failing and that weakness will be gone forever. But until that day comes, let's strive to be like Jesus now. Listen, if you don't want to be like Jesus now, what makes you think you're going to want to be like Jesus when you get to heaven? Like, let's strive through the power of the Holy Spirit, through much humility and much prayer and in much failing, let us strive to be like Jesus. See, knowing that we will be like Jesus in the future gives us hope so that we will purify ourselves to be like him in the present. Now hear me. If we make the decision, hey, I'm all in, I want to be like Jesus, again, imperfectly, but I want to be like Jesus, and I want people to know I belong to the family of God, and I want to live like Jesus, here's application number two, and I skipped a verse, and I hope you caught that, because I'm coming back to it. Application number two is this, living as sons and daughters of God means the world won't know you. Look what John says. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. Here it is. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Man, there's much hope for you, church. There's much hope for us in Christ. He's coming. We're His children. We can be like Him. We will be like Him. This is hope. But in the middle of all of this hope is this reality. That if you decide, I am a child of God, I'm giving my life to Jesus, I've been born again, I'm going to pursue righteousness, hear me, you will never, ever feel at home in this world. John says they won't know you. They won't know you because they didn't know me. They didn't know Jesus. They didn't know the Father. They didn't know Him. 
See, the world doesn't understand our devotion and our obedience to Jesus. They don't get it. It doesn't make sense to them. It's not what they, the world, that is this unbelieving system opposed to God. They don't want God in the picture. Therefore, they don't want his followers, his children, his sons and daughters. They don't really want us in the picture. They don't understand us. They don't get us. And so here's the choice we have to make. Will we live for Jesus or will we live for the world? I got a lot of hope for you. But I also have a very sobering reality for each of us and for your children and your grandchildren and your great-grandchildren. If they or we live like Jesus, we will forever be homeless on this earth. We are sojourners. Your teenagers, if they live for Jesus, teenagers, if you live for Jesus, you will never fit in at school. Never. You will never fit in, really like fit in on a football team or a basketball team. They might be nice to you. You may feel a little bit of it, but you're never going to be fully immersed because you're always going to be living different than the people in the world. When you go into the workplace, you're always going to feel a little excluded. You may not get invited to other things people get invited to. Why? Because you're living for Jesus. You're all in. You may lose your job. Because you say, hey, I'm living for Jesus. I'm not going to lie. I'm not going to fudge the numbers. You may lose your job. You may lose your job because you say, hey, this is what we believe the Bible teaches about marriage and about sexuality and about gender. And you may lose your job. That's the reality. Because this isn't our home. We're sojourners. You will never really belong. If you decide to give your life to Christ and to be all in. Why? Because the world doesn't know you. And so here's the question for you and I. Are we okay with that? Are we good with that? Living as if we are homeless here on earth. Knowing that we have an eternal home waiting for us in Christ. I mean, I pray. I pray you will say, look, I'll leave a lot of the things of this world behind. That's fine. I'm willing to give it up. Because I know what's waiting for me. And what's waiting for me is far more glorious and greater than anything the things of this world will ever know or could ever know. And so there's great hope for us, church. There's great hope in the midst of this hopeless world. Jesus is coming. We are his sons and daughters. But out of that glorious hope comes a responsibility. Let us live like Jesus. So are you living as Christ what have you to live? What areas of your life, man, do you just need to say, Spirit of God, you need to change me. You need to do some work in me in this area because I'm failing and I want to be more like Jesus. Would you close your eyes and, and bow your heads? We're going to stand in just a moment and we're just going to sing a couple verses of a song before we do some announcements. Let me just ask, do you this morning have a relationship with Jesus Christ? Can you say, hey, there was a moment in my life when I confessed my sins and I repented of my sins and, and I gave my life to Jesus, declaring that he is the Christ, the Son of God, Lord and Savior of my life? Have you done that? If not, man, today's a day of salvation. You can do that right where you are. When the service is over, come see me, see Pastor BJ, see somebody sitting around you and say, hey, I don't know Jesus, I want a relationship with Jesus. And church, if we do know Jesus, how well are we as his sons and daughters resembling the Father in heaven? What sin do you need to confess this morning? What, what area do we need to repent of? Like, wh Where do we need to confess? Jesus, I'm failing you here. Help me to look more like you. And wh Where are you doing well? Where's the Spirit of God change you? Where can you praise Him this morning and say, man, thank you, Jesus. You've really changed my life here. So much hope for you this morning. Will you take hold of that hope? And will we begin to live out to a lost and dying world that we believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, Lord and Savior of our life? Father God, as we just offer up praise and worship to you one last time this morning, Spirit, would you just move in us, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand and let's sing just a couple verses of this song. Take my life and let it be Lord, to thee. Take my hands and let 
standing. Let me just go over some announcements quickly. Just a reminder, because of Labor Day weekend, there are no services this evening, uh, so enjoy your afternoon. This Wednesday, uh, as you saw in the bulletin, Wednesday evenings are back. Uh, I know it's, it's exciting. Again, we're going to try to do, th things are going to still look a little bit different, but if you're used to Wednesday nights, praise makers, our choir, prayer meetings, sunshine singers, team kid, youth, that's a mouthful. All of those things are going to happen either at six or seven o'clock. So pay attention to the bulletin. Our membership class is next Sunday after the service. I have some more booklets. If you didn't get one, uh, if you've already joined or you're thinking about joining, you want to be a part of that. Um, women's ministry, announcement about a, a, a Bible study coming up on se September 20th. You want to be a part of that. And then also Upward Games begin this Saturday. There's a list of names in the bulletin at some point this week. And pray over those names and those families that are represented um, and come out. If you, if you don't help with Upward, come out and watch one Saturday. You will, you'll receive a blessing. All right, Mr. Dennis. Dennis is our deacon of the week, and so he's going to come and dismiss us with a word of prayer and just a reminder to kind of help us to be a little bit healthier when the service is over. If you'll just take your conversations outside, please. Uh, hopefully it's not too hot out there. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for the privilege you give us together in your house, Lord, to worship you. Lord, you alone are worthy of our worship. Lord, we thank you for the hope that we have in you, uh, the adoption. Uh, we are part of your family because of uh, the faith we've placed in, in what you've done for us, that you paid the penalty for our sins. That, uh, Lord, we just thank you for that. Lord, I pray that you help us to uh, be faithful witnesses of that hope that we have and share it with the world, that they could have that same hope. Lord, I pray that you just lead us, guide us, and direct us now as we go through the remainder of this week. Or that we'd seek to honor you in all that we think, say, and do. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.